said he says he doesn't preach, but that'll preach. Deep, deep love of Christ. Thank you, brother. If you would turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 14 as we continue in looking at this wonderful letter that the Holy Spirit has given us through the hand of Paul to the church in Rome that we now get to ponder and study and to apply to our own lives. We are winding down towards the end. As we do, we are still looking here in this section of the letter at how we are to respond, how we are to respond to each other in light of what we have been given through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, in light of the salvation that we have, how are we to treat one another? How are we to act? How are we to love? How are we to live life with? Not only our brothers and sisters in Christ, but those in the community and in the world that we live in. And so we continue on here in chapter 14. So if you would please stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word this morning. We are going to be reading all of 14 and the first half of chapter 15. So rather long passage. If in the middle of that you need to have a seat and take a rest, we totally understand. But let's begin together this morning. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. But not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes that he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and give thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or, why, or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. 
For Christ did not please himself, but as is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. And Lord, we ask the same that Paul asked. We ask that you would fill us with the joy and the peace and the hope that can only come from the Holy Spirit. That you would do through us things that we cannot do ourselves. That we would care for our brother and sister in Christ the way that you have cared for us that we might demonstrate your patience and your grace and your mercy and your love that others may experience it and see it and glorify your name that others may be drawn to you father we pray these things in the beautiful name of jesus christ amen We come to this passage, and in many ways, this is the closing of another major section. We, we talked about how chapters 1 through 11 are a major section of this letter, and they deal with the salvation that God has gifted to those who believe in him by faith. We come to chapter 12 through this passage in 15, and we see how we are to live out that salvation in light of what God has done. And really, in chapter 15, verse 13, we kind of see the final uh, conclusion of all of this letter with the rest of 15 and 16 being some final words of encouragement and some final words of uh, joining him and Paul in ministry. We see the, the really the end of his argument, though, in verse 13 when he says, May the hope of God fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. We compare that to the thesis of Romans, which we find in chapter 1, verse 16, where it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So Paul begins his letter in chapter 1 by saying, It is by faith that we find the righteousness of God, that we live in that righteousness. And then in chapter 15, verse 13 we see the result of that living in righteousness this joy and peace and hope that comes because of faith and because of what God has done and so we see kind of the the full picture here the conclusion of of what Paul is writing by the leading of the Holy Spirit most of 14 and 15 though have to deal with with the continuing idea that we are living sacrifices, that in light of salvation, that we are to offer our lives up to him as 
those that would declare that he is our Lord and King. And so to get there, let's back up to chapters 1 and 11, and we're going to do a review. And again, the idea of doing a review every week the way that we have for the last several months is twofold. One is that we might better understand the text that we are in in the moment, but it is also that long, it is so that long after we are done studying Romans on Sunday mornings, that we might remember the truths of God's word, that we may be able to reproduce them. Because when reading God's word, we're not meant to just gather information and to hold on to it, but rather we are to exude it. It is to come out of us after we have learned it so that it may encourage and challenge others. And so let's look at these truths once again. In chapters 1 through 11, Paul again is addressing largely our salvation. And so he begins by helping us to understand why we need salvation in the first place. The first three chapters are largely dedicated to helping us understand that we are justly convicted and rightly sentenced. That every one of us has disobeyed God and broken his law in some form or fashion. Though we may not be murderers, though we may not be thieves, Though we may not be idolaters in the sense of worshiping a golden image, we have broken his law as disobedient to our parents, as liars, and as idol worshipers of the thing, the idols of the day, whether it be money or power or prestige or just our own pleasure. We are justly convicted, and because we are guilty. We are rightly sentenced, and the sentence that we see in Scripture for breaking the law of God is separation from God forever in a place called hell. These are weighty things. They are not meant to be read flippantly nor thought of dismissively. They are to be pondered and even trembled at, and yet... What we see in chapter 3, verse 21, is Paul say something glorious. He says, but now. What now, Paul? Now we have been justified by faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus has come. God wraps himself in the flesh. And Jesus has come that he may live a perfect life. Not deserving of consequence. Not deserving of death. So that he may pay a penalty for us. If he had done wrong, he would have paid the penalty for himself. But being perfect, he pays our penalty. He, get, he dies our death. He separates himself or he is separated from the Father on, for us. He goes through our torment and our anguish for us. That he may rise again three days later in victory over those things. And present us with the gift of salvation. But of course, the gift must be accepted. Gift must be accepted. We must come to Christ in repentance, asking for forgiveness and desiring to walk a different direction. We come to him in belief that he truly is the son of God and that he did die on the cross for us and rise in victory three days later. We do come in commitment to follow him with the rest of our life. But when that happens, he does the extraordinary. He takes us from being guilty to being innocent. He takes us from deserving consequence to deserving blessing. And so Paul spends a good portion of that section rejoicing in our new position that we are that now we have peace with God that now we are secure in his grace that we rejoice in the hope that he has given us we even rejoice in this life despite its difficulties because we know him Paul concludes that section 1 through 11 by helping us to understand in chapters 9 through 11 that God is working out this plan that he continues to work out this plan of salvation for his people, for all who would come to him and call on his name and believe, those who would follow him, and how he will work out that salvation until the end of time. Paul then turns his attention, as we have said, in chapters 12 through halfway through chapter 15, to how then we are to live. 
He says, therefore, since we understand the salvation that God has given us, then how are we to live? And he gives three commands at the beginning of chapter 12. The first we've already discussed. He calls us to present ourselves as living sacrifices. As we've said in the Old Testament, there was a need for blood sacrifice in worship for the covering of sin. But because of what the work that Christ has done on the cross, there is no longer need in our worship for blood sacrifice. So in Instead, we come before him and we offer our lives as living sacrifices that we may do all that he calls us to do, that we may honor him with what our, our words and our actions. So we're living sacrifices. As living sacrifices, he commands us not to be conformed to this world. So we're not to look like everybody else. We're not to act the way they act. We're not to talk the way they talk. We're not to hold their morality as the standard. We're not to hold their, their definition of success as the standard. We're not to pursue the things they say are worthy of pursuit. We are to be different because he has made us different and he is continuing to make us different. We are called to be transformed. And this is an act that only the Holy Spirit does in the life of a believer to transform the individual from one that was of this world to one that is of Christ. That we may produce that which goes along with one who is the son or daughter of God. Things that we cannot do on our own. And so we do things like we serve God and others in a different way. We're transformed. We produce the fruit of the Spirit. We act different towards our enemies. We are good citizens. We love others. We wait for the King doing His work in the meantime. And so that brings us to chapter 14 then. As Paul continues to talk to us about what does it mean to be a living sacrifice. And he begins with this. Living sacrifices bear with one another. Look at me again. Look with me again at chapter 14, starting in verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One believes that he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let, the one, let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats for God has welcomed him. We bear with one another. We do that in several ways. One of those is that we do not judge based on opinion, Paul says. Now, when we come to the faith, when we come to life, we understand that there are differing levels of things that there are those things which Scripture speaks of in black and white terms that are fundamental to our faith. That if you do not believe these things, then you cannot rightly call yourself a Christian. You must believe in the divinity and the humanity of Christ you must believe in his death on the cross, which pays for the sins of those that trust in him. You must believe in the resurrection. And there are a few others, these things that we must believe in with all that we are. And it is right that if someone says those things are not true, that we divide ourselves from them. But these are the things that are fundamental to the faith. There are things that are black and white that are clearly expressed. And upon those, we do judge, though carefully. The second level is those things that are important to the faith, that are addressed in Scripture, but they do not, uh, there, there is room for some interpretation. One example of this, you could say, is the, the Lord's Supper. That it is an important part of what we do. It is one of the two ordinances of the church. The other being baptism. And so it is important that we observe it. It is important that we take it seriously. But questions of how often do we do that? Questions of what, what is the proper uh, the bread and the proper cup? What, what are those things? Questions of is this for members only? Or is it for any believer that gathers together at that time? Those questions are left up to some interpretation and some leading of the Holy Spirit. 
And so while the Lord's Supper is incredibly important to our faith, there are a few things in it that we can disagree with and still call each other brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we must, in that area, we're a little more careful in how we speak and how we talk about those things. And then the last one, which is what Paul is addressing, is in our opinions. There are things in Scripture that we read that are open to various interpretations. And we read them and we are led by the Spirit in one direction or another. And we sometimes land in different places. Whether it be our interpretation of Revelation and how some of that is going to happen. Or whether it be in our interpretation of Uh, the sovereignty of God in salvation and predestination or free will and all that. We can read those things and we can walk away saying, I don't, I am unable to have a full grasp on these things. And so we might disagree about how some of those apply in our life, but I would never walk away from a brother or sister who disagrees with me in one of those areas and say, they are not a Christian. They're not of the family of God. I can still love them. I can still serve them. I can still worship alongside them on a Sunday morning, even if we differ in an opinion. And Paul gives us a couple of examples of this. He gives us first a physical opinion, a difference of opinion based on something physical. We see it there in verse 2. It says, One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let the one who eats let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats for God has welcomed him. And so we see here a disagreement over an opinion that the Roman church was having. You'll remember with me that the Roman church was uniquely Gentile and Jewish. There was a mix of both in this church in a way that was interesting and in some ways unique from other places in, in that known world at the time. And so one of the things that they were dealing with was whether whether meat was something that one could pursue as a believer. And this had two parts to it. One was that some who were Jewish had grown up with the Old Testament dietary restrictions. And so they saw things like pork as unclean, not not being able to consume those because of what what Scripture says in the Old Testament. While Gentiles looked at that, not having not grown up in that, and say, no, Jesus completed the law. We're not under that any longer. And so everything is open. We see a further explanation in Corinthians that there was another aspect to this. That a lot of the meat that was sold in the markets, whether it was in Rome or in Athens or in Corinthians, that meat that was sold in the market had been had been offered, had been sacrificed in the name of an idol, of a false god. And so there were those in the church that said because this meat was, was offered in that type of worship, that it was tainted, that we shouldn't eat of that because then it made us somehow uh, implicit in the worship of a false god. And they wanted to separate themselves from that. And so they wouldn't eat the meat while there were others that were like, it's just meat. Like, okay, so it went through that process, but now it's not like that false god has any power to change the the structure or the morality of that piece of ham. Like, we're just going to eat. And so there were these two sides that that were differing over this opinion. And Paul says, stop it. Stop it. We don't judge. We don't separate over these types of things. We handle them carefully which we're going to go on and see here in just a moment. It's not just physical things, though. There are some spiritual things here as well. And he gives us another example. Starting in verse 5, he says, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Okay, so what is he talking about here? This is more of a of a religious debate, not a, not a physical one in terms of whether we eat meat or don't eat meat. But here there's, there's a religious undertone of, okay, what day is special? And again, it goes back to kind of that Gentile Jewish thing that we talked about just a moment ago. That the Jews had grown up with the Sabbath being on Saturday. That that was the day to abstain from work, to meditate upon God, and to understand, to worship Him, and to understand our dependence upon Him. 
And yet there were those in the church that would say, no, we don't celebrate the Sabbath on Saturday anymore, but rather the day of worship should be on Sunday, the day of Jesus Christ's resurrection. And that's the day that we should gather together and to worship and to meditate upon God. And they carried some of those Sabbath ideas over with them, that it's not good to work on the Sabbath. And then there were others who said, no, every day is created by God. Every day is a day of worship and fellowship and service. And they, but they didn't carry over the restrictions of not working. But they said, we should gather together regularly, not worrying about what day it is. Paul says, these are opinions, and they are good to discuss and good to talk about, but they are not worth separating over. That we can have different opinions on these things and be okay. And even today, there are some issues with even this topic of when do we worship? When do we celebrate Sabbath? How much of it do we carry over from, from the Old Testament? And there are some that, that don't see a problem with, with working on... There are some that that would say, no, we're together together and to worship together for sure. We should do that every day of the week. But we're not under those Old Testament restrictions. There are others that would say, no, that Sunday is the day that we gather together. There are others, brothers and sisters that we know that, and in the past, this was pretty much the, the norm that there, you didn't go out to eat at a restaurant. You don't, you don't go to the grocery store on a Sunday so that you prevent someone else from having to work. And we can look at those things and we can, we pray over those things and we meditate upon those things. And Paul says that God leads us to a place, to a standing, to a bearing in our conscience. And we should obey wherever God has us to land on those things. But we should not look down upon another brother or sister in Christ who lands somewhere different we must be careful with that. And so we do not judge each other based on opinion. The breaking of, of Christ's heart and certainly the breaking of your pastor's heart is there are those that have walked away from us as a body of believers over opinions. That they have walked away from us over things that I very much in the moment wanted to call silly, but they weren't silly for that individual and it broke my heart because it's like, this is not vital. Like, we can disagree on this thing, these things and still worship together. We can disagree on these things and still be family together. And to watch them walk away over those things was difficult, and it's still difficult. And I pray that the Lord would bring them back. So we, we must be careful with these things. And we do that. So we don't judge each other based on opinion. We also respect the conscience of family. While we don't judge one another, we also respect the conscience of family. He says here in verse 6, The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. We are to respect the opinion, the spiritual opinions of others. It's not just not judging. There's a respect factor. And this is hard, right? In a world, the world we live in, and especially, though I gather from what Paul says here in Romans that it wasn't that really much that much different 2,000 years ago, that it is hard not just to not judge someone with a different opinion, but it's hard to respect someone with a different opinion. But when it comes to brothers and sisters in Christ... That is what we are called to do, especially brothers and sisters in Christ. For those that are being led by the Holy Spirit, who come to different conclusions than we do on things that are not clear in Scripture, we are to respect the decision that they make. Whether it be on the foods they eat, or the things that they drink, whether it be on the, how they approach uh, Sabbath in terms of how strict they want to observe that, 
whether it be on where they fall on certain theological matters, whether it be on whatever, whatever the case, that we are to respect that decision. Now, this doesn't mean we don't have conversations. Okay, you'll notice throughout here, Paul is saying that he believes that he has a freedom in Christ, that these things are not unclean, that all days are, like he has an opinion himself. And he's, he, at other places, in other letters, discusses those opinions and talks about those opinions. I think sometimes we, uh, like most things, we swing on a pendulum where we think, well, Christ tells us not to judge each other in these things, so that means don't talk about these things. That's not, he's not wanting us to swing all the way over there. He's wanting us to chart this course very carefully where we can talk with one another in truth and in kindness and in gentleness about the Word of God and say, okay, how did you get there? How, how do we apply these scriptures to talk about these things? But then also be willing and able to walk away from those discussions with respect for one another. Regardless of whether we are able to make the other decide the way that we do or think the way that we do. Lastly, not only do we, not, we bear with one another by not judging one another based on opinion, by respecting the conscience of family, but we bear one another, with one another by not causing others to stumble. Starting in verse 12 of 14. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother's brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. But, why, but what you, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Jesus says this, in Luke chapter 17, he says, And to his disciples, he said, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, repent, you must forgive him. We take care of one another. We protect one another. We all know that we have areas of weakness, whether it be in things that we eat or whether it be in things that we drink, whether it be in things that we watch, or things that we allow our mind to wander onto, whether it be in technology or entertainment, whether it be in work, being a workaholic, whether it be in certain theological matters and understandings, we all have blind spots and we all have weaknesses. And we are to walk with one another in patience and grace. This is not easy. <laughs> it's not easy. Christ never claims for it to be. Nor does he ever mean for it to be. It's hard to put others before ourselves and to, to restrict our own actions in a way that would benefit another and yet, that is exactly what Christ has done for us. In those moments when I grow frustrated and tired, I am reminded of what Christ has done for me and how much patience he shows me. Kind of the same way that we've, we've talked about and joked about in the past that when there are moments when I, I just kind of do this with Rosemary that my mom looks at me and goes, you think I didn't go through that? You think that I didn't bear with you? How much more that Christ has, has shown me patience and shown me grace, how much more has Christ surely hoped that I would mature a little faster, that I would gain on to something a little quicker, that I would stop going back to that 
that sin and instead would grab hold of him in the same way as we walk with brothers and sisters in Christ. May we watch over one another and protect one another in those areas of weakness and show the patience of Christ with them so that when they sin, though they do it seven times in a day, that if they show true repentance, that we would be quick to forgive, that we would be quick to continue to walk with them, that we would be quick to put them before ourselves even so that they may not stumble that they may continue to grow in their faith. We are called to bear with one another. And in doing so, we are called then to look like Christ. Starting in chapter 15, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. When we are called to bear with one another, to show patience with one another, we are called to look like Christ. And truly, as we look at all of these things in chapters 12 through chapter 15, all of those things, as we are being transformed, we are being transformed into his image. When he talks about living sacrifices, serve God and serve one another, that is the image of Christ. When it talks about that, that we are as living sacrifices to be different in how we interact with our enemies, that is to be in the image of Christ. When he calls us to be good citizens, that is in the image of Christ. And so in this way too, as we bear with one another, we are to look like him. And that means caring for those who are weaker. Now, when he says weaker, this isn't meant to be a derogatory term. It's not meant to, to be, hey, hey, take care of those ones that can't take care of themselves. The understanding here is that we all are maturing. We're all growing in our faith. And there are those of us that are, are still babies. There are those of us that are new to this whole thing and they have lots of questions and they're still reading through scripture and trying to learn how to apply it. And we who have been doing this longer, who hopefully have matured, should come alongside them and say, hey, let me help you with this. Let me encourage you in this. Just as we do with a child I don't expect, though I joke about it, I don't expect Rosemary to do my taxes. Man, it would be nice. But she hasn't matured to that point yet. She hasn't figured that part of life out yet. And so I need to encourage her first in math, right? And I need to encourage her in her numbers. And, and then we'll get to tax turbo tax and we'll, we'll encourage her in that. And someday she will be mature enough, Right? That's a silly example, but that's what we're doing. We don't expect for new believers, those that are, are not ready for it, to chew on the meat of Scripture. But what do we have to do? We, have to, we walk alongside them just as Christ has walked alongside us when we didn't understand. So we care for those that are weak. We look like Christ and not thinking about ourselves. He says, let us... Each of us please his neighbor for his good, not to please our, going back to verse one, not to please ourselves, just as Christ did not please himself. We are put others before ourselves. Again, these are things that are not easy. Like, it's much easier to just chase after the things we want, to do the things that we enjoy, to to grab hold of what the world says is good and to try to fill our life with as much as enjoyment and as pleasure as we can. But Christ taught, calls us to live differently than that. He calls us to walk with one another so that the other may go first. Jesus himself says, I came not to be served, but to serve. Philippians lays this out as well. It says, 
So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord with one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but to the interest of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God to be a thing grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of, of death, even death on a cross. If we're going to look like Christ which is the call and the purpose of every believer, then we are going to put others first, even at the expense of ourselves. Again, not easy. It's something that the Holy Spirit must do in us and through us. And this comes to how we serve in the church, right? That we come through these doors, we should not be those that are here to consume, yet that is easy to do. It's easy to come in these doors and, and there's a worship band and there's Nathan and there's someone praying and there's myself. And it's easy for us to come in with that consumer attitude of how can you entertain me? What can you do for me today? And yet that's not what the church is called to do. The church is called to come in and to serve one another you to serve me and I to serve you with the gifts and talents that he's given us, with the testimony that he's given us, with the, 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 just the presence of each other together. But it doesn't work well unless we begin to understand this principle. So we welcome, or sorry, we don't think about ourselves. We glorify God. We look like Christ in glorifying God. He says there in verse 5, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we look more like Christ, as we take care of each other, as we cease arguing about opinions and hold on to the truths of the faith, as we do all of these things, we draw closer to him and therefore closer to one another to the point that we begin to speak with one voice the glory of God. And the world will marvel at that. The world will marvel at that because that doesn't happen anywhere else. And so we must ask the question, what do they see when they look at First Baptist Church Vandalia? Do they see one church coming together, helping each other, protecting each other, encouraging each other, thinking about each other more than we think about ourselves? Not quarreling, I may have already said this, not quarreling about opinion, but loving one another as we love ourselves so that we may glorify him, so that we may speak with one voice of his mercies and his grace, that we may proclaim this message to the world. Do they see that? Because that's different. That's something that they don't get anywhere else. We look like Christ in glorifying God, and we look like Christ in welcoming others into the family. Verse 7, therefore, welcome one another as Christ welcomed you for the glory of God. As I pondered this, that last verse this week, I thought about what does it mean that he welcomed us? And it all goes back to what we see in chapters 1 through 11. Remember that we were enemies of God? That we were those that had committed treason against the king, who had disobeyed him, who rightly stood before the holy judge as guilty and deserving of punishment. And yet, what is his response? Come. His response 
is come. He doesn't wait for us to clean ourselves up. He doesn't wait for us to get all the skeletons out of our closet. He doesn't wait for us to act better. He doesn't wait for us to figure out the, all of Scripture and to be able to pronounce it with perfection. He doesn't wait for us to, to be some superhero of an individual. He comes to us in our weakness. He comes to us in our disobedience. He comes to us in our need. And he says, I want you with a love that is unconditional, with a grace that is undeserved, with a mercy that is unfathomable. Paul says, welcome others as Christ has welcomed you. And so we stand with brothers and sisters in Christ. We love each other as family. We welcome those who come into our midst as visitors. And we point them to our Savior. We go into our community not waiting for them to come to us. Meeting them where they are at. Not lowering the bar of holiness. But delivering them to them a message of hope. As it was delivered to us. In this way we look like Christ. Paul ends, chapter, or ends our passage in verses 8 through 13. By saying one more thing that living sacrifices do. And that is they rejoice. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised. In other words to the Jews. To show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing in your name. And again it is said, rejoice O Gentiles with his people. And again praise the Lord all you Gentiles and let all the people extol him. And again Isaiah says the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles in him will the Gentiles hope. He has come. We rejoice in that Christ rescued us. That he has come out of heaven to do this act of mercy and grace on our behalf that we may know him. We rejoice in that. We rejoice that his promises are sure. We talked about this before that his resurrection is like a receipt that all has been paid in full. And we hold on to that receipt with great expectation of things to come. That when he says that he goes to prepare a place for us, that that is sure. That it is without doubt. And we look forward to it with great anticipation as the greatest gift ever to be given. And we can't wait for that to be completed and we don't wish on it as something that might happen, but as something that will happen because his promises have been kept for age upon age upon age. We rejoice. And we rejoice because he is the one who fills us with joy and peace and hope. The world does not understand these things, nor can they in the way that we do because it is he who gives them in fullness. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Brothers and sisters, my prayer is that that would be the description of us. That the Holy Spirit would fill us with a joy. Not always happiness. Understand there's a difference there. But that he would fill us with a joy that the world does not understand. That he would fill us with a peace that the world does not understand. That he would fill us with a hope that the world does not understand. So that when they see it, they may desire it. Oh, that we would glorify him in all that we do. I'm going to ask the praise team to come back up. And we're just going to have a time of response. Maybe this morning you are here and you have never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Maybe you've sat through a thousand church services, but you know in your heart of hearts, the Holy Spirit is speaking to you and saying, you have never trusted me. 
You don't have that joy. You don't have that peace. You don't have that hope that looks different from everybody else. This morning, will you come to him? Will you ask him to forgive you? Will you believe that he has died for you and risen from the grave? And will you commit to follow him for the rest of your life? If you will do that, then I invite you. Pray that prayer. Come to him. Know these things that he has promised. And then find one of us. You can come forward, grab me, grab another believer here. Come find us so that we can walk with you. That's what we're designed to do. That we may walk with you and tell you what's next. To help you to follow him. To be blessed the way we have been blessed. Maybe you're here this morning and you're a believer. You've been one for a long time and you just need a reminder to be patient with your brother or sister in Christ. We all screw up. We are all human. But we are called to bear with one another, to love one another, to be patient with one another. Maybe this morning there's a need for you to go seek forgiveness for somebody. I encourage you, go do that this morning. Don't wait. Maybe this morning you just need a reminder of we're to look like him in the world that we go into. May you ask the Lord to fill you with that spirit as we go out. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we are thankful. Lord, we are thankful of your presence. We are thankful for your salvation. We are thankful for the one that has been patient with us, who has grown us, who has seen us to maturity and continues to do so. We are thankful that you came and found us and welcomed us into the family of God. Father, I pray that you would help us to do the same. Lord, that we would go find others, that we would welcome them in, that we would give them the same message of hope and joy and peace that you have delivered to us, that it would change their lives as, you, as it has changed ours. Father, I pray for the one that is here that does not know you, Lord, that there would be a great burden on their heart today, that they would not be able to leave this place until they have come to you to seek you out and to follow you. Father, we pray. Do things that only you can do. We ask this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.